It's Wednesday, December 18th, 2019, 85 days since the House launched its impeachment inquiry, and this is Impeachment Today. Good morning, I'm Hayes Brown, reporter and editor at BuzzFeed News. We're coming up on halftime in the impeachment process as the House of Representatives debates two articles of impeachment against the president. We're going to have all the details of that for you tomorrow, but when you're done with this episode, assuming you're listening on Wednesday, go take a look at the debate for yourself. Okay, today we've got our next installment of History Week. This time we're talking to Princeton history professor and Twitter thread writer extraordinaire Kevin Cruz about Richard Nixon, the one who got away when it comes to impeached presidents. But before we get to all that, let's catch up on what happened yesterday. So, yeah, today's the day. Starting at 9 a.m., the House will spend seven hours in total debating before its 435 members vote on two articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. That timeline was set in the House Rules Committee yesterday, which, barring a few minor flare-ups, was insanely chill for a body of Congress talking about impeachment. The Republicans and Democrats alike clearly put their biggest squares in that committee, and TBH, I kind of loved watching them work. It's kind of like the zen of watching Bob Ross, but instead of paintings, it's little titchy debates about how rules work. Anyway, the House leadership says it isn't whipping the vote, which is D.C. talk, for making sure the members are all 100% on board. One moderate Democrat from Maine said that he actually plans to vote for the article charging Trump with abuse of power, but not the one charging the president with obstruction of Congress. As a reminder, Trump faces the first charge for pushing Ukraine open to investigations that would benefit Trump in the 2020 election. In exchange, Ukraine was to get a White House visit for its president and nearly $400 million in military aid that was on hold. And he faces the second charge for ordering the executive branch not to cooperate with the House's impeachment inquiry at all, refusing to let senior officials testify or turn over any documents. That said, the votes are definitely there to impeach, and it's looking like, barring any major surprises, none of them will be from Republicans. Meanwhile, the Senate is preparing for the trial that will follow the article's passing, or at least they're preparing to prepare. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, eh, pass, to a proposal from Senate Democrats yesterday on the trial's structure. And he also kind of tossed out the window the idea that he was supposed to be in any way neutral once the trial starts. I'm not an impartial juror. This is a political process. There's not anything judicial about it. Impeachment is a political decision. The House made a partisan political decision to impeach. I would anticipate we will have a largely partisan outcome in the Senate. I'm not impartial about this at all. Statements like that and from other Republicans in recent days have drawn accusations that there won't be an actual trial in the Senate. McConnell also said that he and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer will probably agree on setting up the first part of the trial, where the House prosecution and the president's defense present their cases before answering written questions from senators. It's when we get to the question of what, if any, witnesses, like the Democrats want acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney and former National Security Advisor John Bolton, that we get into trouble. Okay, that was the news, and I just, I don't think I can do justice to the noise that nearly deafened us all yesterday afternoon. You see, the president wrote and sent a letter to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. A six-page letter, one filled with grammatical errors and reads like, what if a Trump tweet had a big brother that was even more wildly inarticulate? I tried reading it all out loud at one point and took me 12 minutes, uh, but here's just a small sample for you that honestly sounds better, removed from the full context of an essay that probably would have had you fail your social studies exam in high school. In it, he tells Pelosi, it is a terrible thing you're doing, but you will have to live with it, not I. He also claims more due process was afforded to those accused in the Salem witch trials. What? 
And he says that any member of Congress who votes in support of impeachment against every shred of truth, fact, evidence, and legal principle is showing how deeply they revile the voters and how truly they detest America's constitutional order. And it ends with the same angry self-pity as the rest of it. I write this letter to you for the purpose of history and to put my thoughts on a permanent and indelible record. 100 years from now, when people look back at this affair, I want them to understand it and learn from it so that it can never happen to another president again. Holy shit, right? White House lawyers were apparently excluded from the process in drafting this message until late in the game. Instead, it was Trump and three of his advisors together pinning a letter that the chair of the Rules Committee called unhinged. Yikes, just the biggest of yikes. And now, to try and put a number to the madness, we have today's reading from our Nixometer. Well, I'm not a crook. Zero, normal day, normal White House. Ten, Richard Nixon resigns, flies away in Marine One. What? This morning, we're at an eight. This time tomorrow, a third U.S. president in 200-plus years will have been impeached. And while it doesn't look like he's going to be stepping into Marine One and taking off anytime soon, times are still wild as hell. Okay, after the break, we talk to historian Kevin Cruz about Watergate and whether we even need a smoking gun this time around. Be right back with you. Chief-It. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat-burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from Chief-It. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. The NFL playoffs are here, and the Super Bowl is right around the corner. You can follow the action like a fan, or you can prep like a scout if you listen to the award-winning Move the Six podcast. The show is hosted by me, Daniel Jeremiah, and my partner, Bucky Brooks. The two of us bring knowledge from careers as NFL talent scouts to the podcast world so fans can watch and understand the nuances of the game like never before. After the Super Bowl, it's draft season. If you want to go in-depth on this year's prospects and learn what makes the top players stand out, there's no better podcast than Move the Sticks. We'll break down film from the professional and college games so you can know which player to look out for when the football season returns next fall. You'll learn a ton about the NFL, and I promise we'll make it fun along the way. We'll have several new episodes dropping each week, and you don't want to miss a single one. Subscribe now and listen to the Move the Sticks podcast on the iHeartRadio app on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Colleen Witt. Join me, the host of Eating While Broke podcast, while I eat a meal created by self-made entrepreneurs, influencers, and celebrities over a meal they once ate when they were broke. Today, I have the lovely AJ Crimson, the official princess of Compton, Asia. Kidding, and Asia. This is The Professor. We're here on Eating While Broke, and today I'm going to break down my meal that got me through a time when I was broke. Listen to Eating While Broke on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, History Week rolls on here at Impeachment Today with our segment, What a Fucking Time. And today, we have quite the fucking time to get through Watergate and Richard Nixon's resignation. 
Joining us from New Jersey to talk about Tricky Dick and what we should and shouldn't take from his downfall is Twitter's favorite historian, Princeton professor Kevin Cruz. Thank you for taking the time, Kevin. Great to be here, Hayes. Okay, so we all think we know how it went down. The president ordered a break-in against the DNC at the Watergate Hotel, lied about it. Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post report about it with Deep Throat's help. A smoking gun tape proves Nixon lied about it. He resigns and flies away. So let's go through some of that and break it down, starting with Nixon himself. Since he stepped down, he's become kind of the boogeyman of U.S. presidential politics, both as far as what he did in his overreach and what happened and how he was forced out of office. But that wasn't always how Nixon was viewed, right? No, at the time, you have to remember, before Watergate, Nixon had been reelected in a huge landslide, one of the biggest electoral wins alongside FDR in 1936 and LBJ in 1964. It was a huge landslide, overwhelming. I want to say something like north of 400 electoral votes. It was a huge sweep, and he seemed to be incredibly strong. Which is wild, considering like he probably didn't need his dirty tricks in order to get that level of approval. People liked Nixon. That's the amazing thing. And when I teach this, students are always baffled by that. Why did he need to break in? We have to remember Nixon was, he obviously didn't know he was going to be reelected by that margin. He hadn't been elected by an overwhelming margin in 68. It was a three-way race with Humphrey and George Wallace. And most important, in 1960, Nixon had been leading in the polls and he was the Republican nominee and he wound up losing to JFK. So he was really paranoid about making sure that everything possible could happen to seal his victory. That sounds very familiar. Something that strikes me in today's case is that there really isn't much shock, you know, from either side that Trump would ask for these favors from Ukraine that would help him out personally. Was there, though, a bit of surprise factor at work when it finally did come out that, well, yeah, Nixon really did it? Yeah, incredible shock. Not just that he did it, but how he did it, right? So the idea that he was involved Even a large numbers of Republicans who had condemned the act of the break-in believed that it had been done without Nixon's knowledge, that he couldn't possibly be involved. How could Eisenhower's former vice president, how could this statesman of the Republican Party who had been cultivating, as he said, an era of quiet dignity, how could he be involved? They were stunned about that. They were also, though, stunned. This is the real shock value of the Oval Office tapes and the smoking gun in particular, and how crude Nixon was behind the scenes, right? And with Trump, it's the exact opposite. Everyone, of course, believes that he would do this. And everyone, of course, isn't shocked by the crudeness that he shows because it's on display constantly. Right. He has his Twitter feed. That's the thing that really, like, hits me over the head is we don't need tapes. He's telling us his thoughts literally every moment of every day. So most people are familiar with the timeline of Nixon, you know, resignation as, you know, Woodward and Bernstein swoop in as they tell in All the President's Men, both the book and the movie, and then Nixon resigns. So what are some of the steps that people are forgetting about between when we first learned that there was a break-in at the Watergate and Nixon actually flying away in that helicopter? We've got to remember, you know, the time from the break-in to the resignation is over two years, and it's a slow, long, drawn-out process. And after the first year between the break-in and the early inquiries, There were a lot of arguments to support this that people had grown tired of the scandal. Uh, This is all old news. We're not going to learn anything new. Move on. Nixon, in his 1974 State of Union address, says explicitly, one year of Watergate is enough. It's time to move on. Well, you know, of course, he winds up resigning uh, later on that year. So it clearly wasn't enough. But along the way, there were things that kind of revived the scandal in the public's mind. The big one is the famous Saturday Night Massacre, which takes place in October 1973 where he tries to get his attorney general to fire the special prosecutor. And in a remarkable moment that showed a commitment to country over party, the attorney general, Elliot Richardson, uh, and his top deputy, William Ruckelshaus, both resign rather than do that. 
it finally falls to Robert Bork, who agrees to do it. But it's a huge shock. It really shows people that they've reached what John Chancellor of NBC News calls a constitutional crisis. And it immediately drives Nixon's poll numbers down. It sparks support for impeachment inquiries. And it really kicks the inquiry into high gear. So we didn't really have that. We had the Mueller investigation. And yes, there were a lot of threats from Trump that he would fire the special counsel and get rid of him. But that never really happened. Instead, we have Mueller's final report, which came out. He looked into obstruction, but there's not a specific article of impeachment from the Democrats about the Mueller report. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Democrats shied away from that, especially when it's pretty apparent, much as it was during Nixon's time? Yeah, I mean, I'm not privy to those conversations. And I do think that Mueller laid out a fairly clear case, even though he was reluctant to say it. He didn't think it was his place. He thought it was the Congress's place to say it. But he laid out a very clear case for obstruction of justice on the Russia affair. I think Democrats shied away from that because they really wanted to keep this as narrow as possible. And again, with Watergate, we have to remember that they looked at a wide range of things. Uh, everything from the invasion of Cambodia to allegations that there were illegal campaign contributions uh, brought by uh, ITT and the American milk lobby to the president's tax returns, on and on. They had a wide range of things that were on the table. It wasn't just about the break-in. I think that House Democrats today have chosen to follow the model that House Republicans did in the Clinton impeachment, where they went very narrow. One of the things that's striking in looking at the articles that came out of judiciary that are being debated on the House floor today is how closely they mirror Nixon's. You have abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, both of which Congress went after Nixon for in 74. But now you have Republicans saying those aren't even crimes. So what's your take on that? Well, it's a nonsense argument and one that doesn't hold up. You have to look back to how the founders considered high crimes and misdemeanors. They weren't looking to link them to statutory violations. They really were thinking broadly. Uh, It's not a case that if a president does something minorly illegal like jaywalking or speeding, you would impeach him. Uh, And there are certainly big things he would do, like, say, not defend the country from a foreign attack, which aren't technically illegal, which I think we would all agree would be impeachable. Yeah, you'd think. Yeah, you'd think. But this was addressed directly during the Nixon impeachment inquiry. Uh, this is something the House Judiciary Committee did, one of its first orders of business, was to make it quite clear that there doesn't have to be an underlying crime. It's something that they sorted out then, and wide uh, section of the public agreed. Okay, let's look at where we are right now. We've had public hearings that did not have quite as much of an impact as, you know, the Senate Watergate hearings did back in the day. And the House Judiciary Committee has voted on articles of impeachment, which is about the time when Nixon resigned. So my question is, is it still worth holding up those two timelines to each other as a comparison? There's always a danger in overstating the case of comparisons. But but I do think it's interesting to look at just where public opinion stands here as compared to then. We just had this poll this weekend uh, put up by Fox News, which showed that 54% of the country is in favor of impeachment, 50% favor impeachment and removal, and another 4% favor impeachment but not removal. I guess they see it as a kind of a, a censure motion. But that's remarkable, given that at the same time in the Nixon timeline, the numbers were lower. And in fact, the support for Nixon's removal even after the smoking gun comes out, even after he resigns, is still only at 58%. So we're almost there. So for all the talk about how the country's more polarized, how Fox News is going to make this impossible to do, the public is actually more in favor of impeachment today than they were in favor of Nixon at the same point. That's absolutely crazy to consider. So what's missing from the equation then? What do you think is keeping Republican senators from pulling, you know, the same thing during Nixon and saying, look, you got to go. There is a trial. There's no way we can back you on this. I think the real difference is the the difference in the makeup of the Republicans in Congress. If you look back in Watergate, there were a number of Republicans who, no matter how conservative they were, they had a clear sense that there were certain things that were beyond the pale. 
And they clearly came to the conclusion, some of them very reluctantly, they wrestled with this in public. Walter Flowers, a conservative Democrat, Larry Hogan, a conservative Republican, very famously wrestled with this in public almost, and finally came to the conclusion that they had no choice. That as much as they liked Nixon, as much as they loved his policies, as much as they backed him before, they had no choice. At the same time, Republicans back then were more concerned with themselves and their own institutions. They looked to defend Congress. They weren't willing to to say it's okay if the president blows off a congressional inquiry, it's okay if he blows off subpoenas. They were very protective of their institution. Uh, And now you've got a set of Republicans in Congress who seem to be all in on defending the president at all costs. I'm sure many of them think they could be president one day, and so that's a whole thing. So jumping back really quickly to that shock question earlier, have we become too reliant, too dependent on the idea of a smoking gun where the president basically admits that, yeah, I did it, whether he knows he's being recorded or not? The Twitter feed asking, you know, Ukraine or China to intervene, uh, you know, on the White House lawn, it's all right out there in the open. So people keep waiting for the smoking gun. I've argued, you know, they ought to just take some of these tweets and some of these press conference lines, bury them and pretend they discovered them. Then maybe people would be shocked by it. Yeah, sort of like hiding bones in the backyard for your kids to discover. Oh, look, a dinosaur was here. Okay, this is my last big question for you. One of the things that's been thrown around is that what Trump did was worse than Nixon. Is that an accurate way to frame all of this? I mean, you know, it's hard to do a one-to-one comparison, but if you look at the bare facts of what Nixon did, he broke into the DNC to get dirt on his political opponents. That's bad. What Trump did was, if the facts are true, went uh, abroad to try to drum up a foreign intervention into his opponent, which is a a huge step to really uh, kind of breach the wall in which foreign policy had always been considered by both parties to really be off limits. The old saying that politics stops at the water's edge. That's not true now. And Trump was willing to sacrifice foreign policy initiatives to go against Congress's will in terms of funding Ukraine and elsewhere, and to really put it all on the table for his own partisan personal gain. Yikes. Okay, well, Kevin, before we let you go, what is one thing you think that our audience should read, you know, aside from your amazing lengthy Twitter threads, to really get a better sense of where we are with impeachment now, and especially in comparison to Nixon? There's a great edited collection that was put up by John Meacham and Tim Neftali and Jeff Engel. I think it's called Impeachment, which covers uh, not just the Nixon impeachment, but also Johnson and Clinton. I think it really puts the current moment in perspective. That sounds like a great read. I encourage everyone to read it over the Christmas break while we're waiting for the Senate trial. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Hayes. Take care. Okay, that's it for today. Tomorrow, we'll more likely than not have an impeached president. So that's new. We'll be here with all the details for you, and I'm sure it's going to be a debate worthy of the ages, full of calm, reasoned arguments, but nah, it's going to be wild. But we'll have all the highlights for you. Plus, Mother Jones DC Bureau Chief David Korn will be here for History Week to talk about Clinton's impeachment and what we can take away from that. Be sure to subscribe to Impeachment Today on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go to hear my disembodied voice. And uh, maybe leave us a rating and a review. Also, tell your friends about the show as we all figure this out together. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. 
That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Have you ever felt depressed about work only to have your dad be like, why are you so down? So you told him you hate your job and he said, well, you better talk yourself out of it. And then you thought, hmm, I love to talk. I could host a podcast. And then you went to Spreaker from iHeart and started a podcast and got good at it, then monetized it, then quit your boring job, then told your dad, thanks for the advice. And he was like, well, that's not what I meant. And I don't understand what a podcast is, but you seem happy. So that's great, kiddo. You ever do that? Well, you could at Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Ask your dad. Yeah, actually, don't. Hello, hello. Hey, I don't know if you heard, but my podcast, Checking It, has been nominated for the NAACP Image Award in the category of Outstanding Lifestyle and Self-Help Podcast. I'm grateful for the nomination. I, I almost didn't even do a podcast because I was just wondering, there are thousands of podcasts out there and why is my voice needed? But a nomination from the NAACP lets me know that um, I made the right choice. And I encourage you to do, don't worry if there are thousands of something out that you want to do. No, nobody has your sauce. So listen, you can still vote. Go to vote.naacpimageawards.net. You have until February 5th, um, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And please listen to my podcast. We're a part of the Black Effect Podcast Network on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for checking in.